Just a quick message before the show begins. We're a year in now and I've really enjoyed doing this and I hope you've been enjoying it too. If you have, then please like and share the content and get in touch with any thoughts and feedback and hopefully we can keep growing the show and getting more incredible guests. Thanks and back to the show. I'm Adam Gow, the DJ formerly and sometimes currently known as Wax On. Welcome to the Once A DJ podcast. DJing and DJ culture have been a huge part of my life for better or worse. They've given me a massive buzz at times and loads of stress at others and taught me a load of valuable lessons along the way. On this podcast, I speak to DJs from around the world who've made the names when it was just about skills and selection, not social media followers. We'll discuss their journey through Ascendancy and what part it plays in their life now, whether they're still on the scene, said goodbye to the decks forever, or still get a sneaky mix in when life gives them the chance. Whatever road they've travelled, they were always once a DJ. Okay, so I'm here today with sound engineer, radio producer and founder of Spiritland Listening Bar in London, Paul Noble, and I've just had a tour of Spiritland um, and I listened to the sound system and it's absolutely incredible. Thank you. We gave it a little blast, didn't we? Yeah. And um, thanks for inviting me and Once a DJ down to the podcast studio here. No problem. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm okay. Um, There's lots going on. We're um, opening another venue next year. And it's going to be another Spiritland bar, but there's a club in the basement. So there's just a million questions of fun stuff like design and sound system and lighting and room layout. And then lose aircon, EPOS, data, like, you know, much more yeah, boring I, stuff involved. I suppose with that, and we'll, we'll probably get into more of this as we talk, it's going to be a question of looking at... I think something that's interesting about you is... Um, it's your approach to the consumption of music, the relationship with it, the intimacy, everything about it. So I guess doing a club is going to be quite different. But let's go to the start and, and just look at your background, really, and see how you got to this point. Because um, you're from London, right? Yeah, I grew up in Wembley, North London. Yeah, and your dad was frequently down down in town, taking you to jazz bars. He yeah. To Ronnie he's, Scott's, right? Yeah, he's... um. He was in a folk band, but he's a jazzer and he loves, um, you know, like Oscar Peterson and Joe Pass was like a big figure in our lives. Mm. He was an incredible guitarist. Um, and he played, I think he did like five nights in Ronnie's and we went to two or three of them when I was quite young. Um, so, yeah, there was always music in the house, lots of instruments. Um, he plays guitar and sax and then me and my brother started playing guitar and then I started playing piano we just it was a bit kind of you know grab an instrument and play it in the so house. Were, were you guys all about improv or was he like putting you through lessons no I I did I tried piano lessons I was terrible I couldn't I, I you know I failed everything I couldn't get beyond grade one um but basically Elton John just like listening to Elton John I was like oh, that makes sense and I could hear <clears throat> I could really clearly hear chord structures and patterns in my head, and it was really obvious, like C, G, A minor, F. To- mm. Like it, to- it totally made sense. Um, so I could h- hear a song, apart from you know Stevie Wonder and Brian Wilson who make up their own bizarre chords. Everything else, I was like, this is really obvious, and that and that's kind of how I play piano, like pub piano, sing along. So it's not, you know, 
Yeah. Not particularly discreet, but I can whack it out for a, for a sing-along. Um, yeah, I'm very much like that. If the cards are basic, I can get my head round them. I can't do anything clever with inversions. Right. I'm very much like four fingers. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I, I get that. Um, so just on the Ronnie Scott thing, because this was just something I picked out from the Monocle interview that you did. Right. Was Ronnie, would Ronnie Scott have been, I mean, it's now it's like a hundred pound night, isn't it? Yeah. By the time you've had some food and a drink and your ticket, would it have been that sort uh, of? I mean, premium? I have no, I don't think it was what it was. Uh, there was also, there wasn't just Ronnie's, there was the Bull's Head in Barnes, um, 606 in Chelsea, the Blue Note, was it the Blue Note? Before the Blue Note, basically in Hoxton, where mm. Stealth and Metalheads and everything ended up. Um, and I remember Hoxton was, you know, really shady in those days. But there was jazz clubs everywhere and there was just a wit, you know, it was a wicked London jazz scene. There was Morrissey Mullen and Paz and all these kind of amazing fusion bands around. So, yeah, there was there was lots of... In the family, there was lots of music, and there was a lot, a lot of um, like certain musicians sort of featured really majorly in my family. So Herbie Hancock, Chick Corea, Pat Metheny, Keith Jarrett, all the kind of gods of like their instruments. It's um, heavy fusion. So yeah. <laughs> if you're someone that can, um, you can kind of pick out your chords, and you've got comfort with say one four five yeah. type stuff. What's it like? How are you, particularly at young age? How are you digesting fusion? Because uh, like I, I listen to certain fusion, I'm like I have to turn it off. It's just too complex yeah. for me. I suppose we had. I mean, we had a lot of Chick Corea in the car, and then also like George Benson, uh, yeah, and Oscar Peterson, like the more you know palatable end of fusion. Nothing, and actually Weather Report as well. Mm. It was all there was a lot of that going on. So um, we'd listen to that, and then. I was thinking in thinking about this interview. There was one tape which one of my dad's friends from work made, and it was the the track that stood out for me was "Stuff Like That" by Quincy Jones, which is the sort of mm. early disco funk track. And I just remember absolutely falling in love with it, and then sort of sniffing out more Quincy Jones. And then you go to you know I was born in seventy two, so. Everything around Michael Jackson, Prince, it was all you know yeah. hit me, hit me just at the right time. Yeah. Um, but then, and then there's also you know Simon Garfunkel, and when I sort of moved on from like whatever was on the radio to my own stuff, I was I was into lots of like prog and rock quite early on. So started with the Doors and then Pink Floyd, and went completely crazy on Pink Floyd, and then Black Sabbath, Deep Purple. Got really into Yes, a bit of King Crimson. So I was doing all of that uh, maybe between, I don't know, 12 and 15 or something. And then basically hip-hop came along and that was that was the end of that. So that's quite early to be, I would have thought, sort of 12, 13, 14. I don't think I was listening to anything that exciting. Not, I mean, not that I'm the arbiter yeah. of um, musical taste. Oh, it's a blur. I hope I'm not getting my numbers wrong but I remember there was a kind of time where I went from like basically Capital Radio was the big thing in London mm. and they would um, they had this end of year countdown every year where they played I think it was like the top thousand songs which is a ridiculous number but the top ten was always Bohemian Rhapsody Freebird Baker Street <laughs> <laughs> Hotel California like all these sort of overblown 
epic songs, but like everything on the way, I don't know. I just soaked up all this stuff on the way there. Yeah. Um, maybe it wasn't twelve. That I might be bullshitting. We. <laughs> but it was. But it. I definitely. I was like. I was well into my prog early yeah. on. So, what was your? Were you buying records by this point? No, not. I mean, sort of singles from Woolworths. Yeah. So the first one I bought was Mirror Man by Human League, mm. which is still a kind of, I'm happy to have that as my first track. But what year was White Lines? 80 82 or right. something? No, I think it was later. Um, but I remember, I remember that coming out. I remember Beat Street. I remember sort of the, the dawn of hip-hop and, you know, on the radio in London kind of hearing... Roxanne Chante and all those sort of response records. Yeah, so who were the DJs that were that were playing? Well, because it's obviously Westwood. Was it Paul Allen yeah. on LBC? Um, definitely Westwood. And then at school it was like, you know, tapes started going around. So whenever it was um, the first Public Enemy record and then mm. NWA and Tribe Called Quest. And, you know, all, having listened to a few of your shows, it's like everyone... Everyone was on the same journey, and we all name check the same artists. Yeah, I think what's interesting is is for a lot of people, it, it was a real boom in their schools, and then all of a sudden it vanished. Mm. But then some people just kept, kept on with it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I just remember there were, I mean, this is going forward to the sort of 15, 16, but the indie that was around just wasn't doing it for me at all. Um, it's like Carter, Wonder Stuff, like not, yeah. not n- the Smiths were the only band who I could really get into at that time. Um, so was that pre or post Baggy? That's pre Baggy, right? Yeah. I mean the Baggy kind of crosses over quite a bit with hip hop, doesn't it? Like yeah. everything seems to like that little explosion in the late eighties. Yeah, yeah. It seemed like everything was a bit more accessible. If you were into one thing, you might like a bit of the other. Yeah. Um, I mean, also, there was hip-hop, like, Run DMC, I was probably too, I kind of liked them, but I was too young to really engage with them, but they were just there. And now, you know, like now I look back and kind of run Run DMC in particular, like, what they did and how they just, they were so, so far ahead of everyone else. And so, mm. sort of, their sound is so stripped back. And and it's hard, isn't it? Yeah, it's, you know, like... You can see where the Rick Rubin, why he got so excited by them. You can yeah. see, you can see the metal link. Um, yeah, I don't know. So I just, I just completely fell in love with hip hop and those artists. And you know, when you're a kid, you're like trying to decipher black American slang, and there's and so much of it. Like what I, you know, I know some words. Some of it makes absolutely no sense, and you sort of slowly like unpick it and get your head. Around the language. So, um, was it easy for you to to get to events at that time? Were, were there many events coming going on in London? There were. I mean, I didn't. What did I go to? I went to the Africa Centre for the Soul to Soul nights. That wasn't necessarily just hip hop. Um, was that Covent Garden? Yeah. Yeah, I think um, Jack Frost talks about them. Right. Because I think it was a lot of like the rare, um, rare groove. Rare groove, yeah, and, and kind of acid jazz and. Yeah. yeah, lots of JBs and Mesa and the Max. Mm. Did I go to any big hip-hop shows? You know, I probably didn't. I guess it would have been 
some of them were in like places like Brixton at the time, weren't yeah. they? Which I don't know if people went to Brixton from. I was just too scared. Yeah. The, the, the Dormouse from like Wembley going all the <laughs> way down to Brixton. Uh, I mean, I did, you know, eventually I did. Uh, but no, probably at the time when I was getting into hip hop. So there was that legendary Public Enemy Beastie Boys show, mm. um, which DJ Food went to and, took, and photographed. And there's, there's these great photos from it. We've got, we've got some here, actually. Um, it was more of a listening for me thing for me. I can't say yeah. I was participating. I really, there was a group called Caveman yeah, from yeah. High Wickham who I loved. I just thought that as a UK hip hop group who didn't sound, you know, they had their own sound. And actually Stereo MCs, like the earliest Stereo MC stuff, I loved. What yeah, their, f- their first album's yeah. quite a classic, isn't yeah. it? But yeah, I think with Caveman, it's that jazz rap, isn't it? They were probably doing that in the UK before anyone else yeah. was. But yeah, and then, I don't know, I'll, I'll let you kind of lead with the questions, but I was always like looking at the DJs and before anyone really knew what was going on, I was like, okay, so he's got two records, he's got a mixer, what, like where's the music coming from? And So would, yeah. would this always be the, the, the DJ that's on with the group? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think that that was a thing in the mixtape documentary. Like Kid Capri talks about that. Like his reason for getting into mixtapes was he wanted to be a star in his own right, rather than the person that's backing up the yeah. the rappers. Yeah. Um, so was it at that point you thought I want a bit of this? Um, well, I was always an equipment nerd. So, for example, you know, like when Kiss FM started, I was recording all those shows and then yeah. picking out, uh, you know. I mean, this is later, but like Charles Peterson, Patrick Forge, Cold Cut, Manasseh. There's a guy called Paul Thomas who did a really good show. So, yeah, I was always um, I was recording stuff and then making my own compilations. Unlike the rest of the world, I wasn't making beat tapes on cassette. It seems like, <laughs> it seems like everyone did that before they got a sampler. But, yeah, I was always kind of collecting equipment and plugging it up and tinkering around with it. And then... Probably in 92, 93, I bought a pair of decks in New York. I don't know why. I don't know. It felt sort of symbolic, but also <laughs> it, was cheap. it was just much cheaper because of the exchange rate. And then I did this bus journey on the Greyhound bus because I I went to Boston and basically was comp- put the decks under the, you know, in the hold under the bus. It was just had this really kind of paranoid bus journey where... Every time we stop, it's like someone's going to nick them, or I'm going to. Were they in get, boxes? They're in boxes in, with you know Technics written on the side. God, um, I don't know. It's the kind of thing you do when you're young, when you're like, that, this is going to be really sensible. Schlep a pair of decks across America and then and then bring them home. I guess part of it as well is it's it's part of your identity when you're young, isn't it? You think that this is what whatever age Paul Ye- does. Yeah, or just I don't know when you're into that music and then you go to New York and you hear just kids on the train, just that's where the rhythm of hip hop comes from. You hear them just mm. talking, and it's like, ah, it all, it all comes together. So was it hip hop pilgrimage then? Not, I mean, I did. Where's that record shop in Brooklyn? There's a Jay-Z video. I went to rock and soul. I went to a few places and I went to a few clubs. Uh, I mean, it wasn't really pilgrimage. 
was more of an eating pilgrimage than a hip hop pilgrimage. But um, <laughs> I definitely is. I look back on it now. It's like you know, someone else would have got a tattoo, and I was like, no, I'm going to buy my decks in New York and yeah. lug, lug them home. And uh, yeah, and then got back, and I was like, right. So how do you do it? And then yeah. So when you first started DJing, was there anyone specific you were trying to emulate? There wasn't. I wanted to learn how to scratch and cut. Um, I was okay. I'm not... Basically, if my left hand is on the crossfader, my right hand is on the record, I can do, like, a perfectly okay, really old school... Yeah. You know, I can't juggle. I can't do anything tricky mm. at all. But I can, you know, jam around on top of a track. Yeah. But, you know, very early on I was like... I don't have the patience or the devotion. Like when I've seen people who got really good, and also in that time, it's like, well, where do you find out about it? You, the, the, all the videos were floating around. You're watching like Cuba or someone insane. Yeah. It's like watching it. It's like going for a jog in the park and then watching an athlete win a gold medal. So I, I think as well with it, there's diminishing returns with learning to scratch, un, unless you're kind of elite level. Yeah. You're just someone who does this thing that a lot of people don't want to hear. No. Can, can you stop doing that on your on your on your music when you're playing out loud? Yeah. Out, out live, sorry. Yeah. No, I mean, I had some DMC videos and I watched it and it was great. And then I saw uh, DJ Swamp, who kind of oh yeah. Everyone, it's, it was funky, but it was also like a real performance, and he mixed it with some you know set fire to his records and all sorts of drama. Yeah, there's the one where he's trying to cut his chest as well, isn't there? Is he? Right. He smashes the record. I can't remember which is the US and which is the worst, but he smashes his record up, tries right. to cut himself, but it just doesn't quite work. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I suppose that there's that end of it, and the style I liked was more like Jazzy Jeff, where it's just, mm. it's really funky. It's in service of the dance floor. It's in service of the tracks. You can let the tracks play for a bit. 100%. It's really like in the pocket. Yeah. And it's just about the groove rather than, you know, absolute fiddling around on the... It's gone the same way, I think, in in the breaking is... It's going to be interesting to see the reception that gets in the Olympics. But some breakers dance to the music. Yeah. And some... It seems to me, to someone who's not really, really in it, are just pulling off their moves... I think with scratching it can be that. People aren't phrasing to the music. They're yeah. just, right, what's my biggest turbo? What's the most technical? Yeah. yeah. It's like, um, you know, when you watch someone at the Olympics on the half pipe doing, yeah. the you know, snowboarding. There's some who are just, they're just vibing and they're going with it. And there's some who are just, it's insane, you know. Mm. They're trying to break a record, basically. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'll, I'll always have an interest in kind of, DJs and scratching, but um, yeah, I mean, when it's got so technical, it kind of lost me for a while. Yeah, I think um, I watched yesterday, um, Mike L, um, he's someone I want to get on here, he's a doctor as well as a DJ, he was last year's all-vinyl world champion, he came second in it this year, and I watched his set, it's really good and it's really technical, but the the thing that I think kind of causes it a problem is he just looks so relaxed and just (laughs) like... He's just pulling off this stuff and it just doesn't seem to be like yeah. bothering him. Yeah. He almost like makes it look too easy. Yep. Because you watch it, it's like, well, why doesn't he look more stressed yeah. trying to do this? Um, yeah. I mean, there's something really fun about, you know, a short routine, a pile of records, 
Um, I think A-Track's a really good example of like he's, you know, technically he's completely moved with the time and has sort mm. of developed his own mixer, but he also can just rock any dance floor up and down, like no problem. Yeah. Um, and the scratching doesn't, it's not like everything grounds to a halt. Yeah, and I I think with scratching, um, it became such a bedroom-based thing, I think, that a lot of, not every turntablist, so say like a John First, for example, they've done the time in the clubs and they've done the time learning to battle. But I think everyone used to be battling in a way that would work in clubs, but now Mm. it's just, it's it's this performance thing and it just, you know, for, for some people it just doesn't quite resonate. Um, but back to your story, anyway. Mm. Yeah, we're going off on a massive tangent <laughs> yeah, here. Got strange. Um, what was what was the early days of DJing for you? How long was uh, it before you were doing parties? Or I went to Bournemouth Uni, and there was a bunch of different music scenes there. Um, that was ninety two, so there was a lot of house and funky house, and everything was called like funked up and <laughs> love sexy, and it was that era. <laughs> like it was the it didn't do it for me, the house music around at the time, but um, the acid jazz, rare groove, you know, I don't know, Boyer's, Gil Scott Heron, and then I don't know what was going on at the time, like Galliano, Mo Wax. Um, yeah, yeah. I loved all that stuff. I mean, what I was playing then was an absolute mishmash, and I can only apologise to anyone who heard me because it was like, 45s really badly cut compilation albums port his head into drum bass it was a complete dog's dinner and i didn't know what i was doing and you know probably should have spent five years like learning how to dj before i got anywhere near a deck the decks but um can i just pick up on something you said there about the quality of pressings yeah how much do you think that matters with like were they like really 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 bad i mean i used to have a stanton mixer that was super quiet and the only way you could get it to peak at peak at zero was to turn the bass and the treble all the way up so you know you're hitting your levels but it's an absolute mess yeah i mean there's really nicely cut records and 12s which really ping out and then there's compilation albums really badly you know badly pressed too many tracks on a side and uh just don't like don't have any wallop in the club like now now i can hear it at the time i was like oh you know great it's like 10 pounds for a double album and all these tracks on it and so yeah i didn't have a clue but how much do you think that matters though i mean so there's a there's a song that always confused me with organ donor by dj shadow right because i thought when i used to when i used to dj kind of first that sort of mid 2000s hmm. i put on i'd put that on and people would love it and like i like it but it's not hard you know, sonically, yeah. and I just, I would expect that to kind of fall flat, but people loved it. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I don't know. No, I'm an audio purist. So I'm not going to say I'm not. But um, <laughs> when I go out, if someone's playing an MP3 or a badly pressed record, you can just hear it. And it also, like most pro DJs, there's there's no, like, it's all straight from Bandcamp or straight from the artist or whatever. Like the, that, that the badly pressed record is not really a, an issue anymore in clubs. And I don't know, there's such a small number of people who um, play vinyl out and, and they're so specific about what they need when they do it rightly. Um, 
it's not it's not an issue but you know going back 30 years people were playing stuff of compilations we all were because no one had the money to pick up all those individual tracks yeah and um some of them were nicely pressed and some of them were horrible i, I mean i i still play some that admittedly are pretty badly pressed yeah. It's certain tunes like some of the like the Jamaica Cats sort of stuff that's on those um, RCA compilations. They're pretty flat, but the songs are amazing. Yeah. My, I mean, my sort of crime at the time is buying lots of bootlegs from rock and soul in New York, or mm. kind of this, you know, Paradise Garage or um, hip hop dancehall mashups. And some of the, you know, now I can hear them like they're horrible pressings. They're just bounced straight out of someone's computer, but. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any policies here on stuff like that? Not um, musically or formats. Format, like, is there any that kind of you don't want people? Playing no, I mean sort of... you can, as long as it's uncompressed, you can do a whole evening on a USB or CD. I don't mind. Um, what we've learned, and we've been open seven years now, and we've done absolutely everything, is it's such a revealing system. If you put in for example, if you're listening to like jazz, proper jazz, you know, hard bop, sax-led jazz, it's so imposing. It's like having a giant saxophone in your ear. And that's fine if you've done what we just did, where you're sitting there listening and having a sort of intense listening experience. If it's a normal bar night and there's people in there eating, talking, hanging out, it's just too, it's just too intense to have a sack, you know, a horn at that level on a system at of this level just coming at you yeah and then there's uh you know for example northern soul we've had some djs who play northern soul original sevens amazing you know collections but these records have been played to death and there's so much crackle and surface noise you know i'd rather hear that same set off a usb for example it's yeah. not it's like it's fine in a kind of crappy basement on that on a sound system where it doesn't matter and actually that's all part of it and I've you know I've had some great nights dancing in places like that but it's like I say it's such a revealing system and then things like um, I don't know a sort of 70s or 80s rock music where it's you know the production is really shining and there's something at every level of frequency top to bottom it's just so intense mm. um so you know when I'm play when I'm DJing here, I'll play dub, I'll play deep house, I play all sorts of stuff. But um, there's stuff which really shows off the system, which has tons of low end and lots of stuff at the high end. But to have something ELO, like it's so the production is it's a wall of sound and it smacks you in the face and it's just mm. kind of it's t it's almost too intense. So you know we book DJs and just let them do what they want. I don't like to be prescriptive about what they play how they play it you know it's not a club so there's no point in playing a whole evening of you know house or techno people have done that and it's sometimes it works but it's not you're not trying to get anyone going as 70 seats in here and it's always a kind of seated table service experience um so just going back to your uni days then mm, it was tv you started off studying yeah right? i did media production and I think like every single person on the course basically wanted to be Quentin Tarantino. It was kind of like <laughs> we're all gonna we're all gonna be the director and we're all gonna change the world of film and then very very quickly you're like it cost you know, to do anything in film, cost a fortune, 
you need the it, it, it's just so difficult to pull off anything in film um but there was a radio course and there was a studios there and you know i always thought like well that's my hobby is like tinkering around with audio it was pre even digital editing so it was all on reel to reel um I got into radio drama and wrote plays, produced them, um, worked with composers, sort of sound effects, uh, worked with actors. It was lovely. This and was I all on the uni course? Yeah, Amazing. yeah. Yeah, there was a documentary course and there was a drama course and I went for drama. Um, and I really got into it and I just thought, okay, there's, like, there's a whole new area of experimental radio drama to happen because the only place you'll hear radio drama is on Radio 4 and it's very... Uh, I mean, there's a Radio 4 drama sound, which is, oh, hello, I didn't see you there. Oh, come in. Mm. Oh, what have you carried? Like, <laughs> like, the lack of images is a, an obstacle rather than let's do some crazy sci-fi, whatever. So that was for a while. I was like, okay, I'm going to get out there and reinvent radio drama. And then I, start, I ended up at the BBC and started working there and doing radio dramas. And I was just like, it's not going to happen. I'm trying to like turn an entire tanker around. Yeah. So um, there was there was was it about five or six people on your would you call it an inlet? Yeah, an intake. So we did a sound engineering course and it was really it was a really long uh kind of trainee period where you learn about uh, sort of signal flow, about mixer mixing and EQ and compression, uh editing, how to edit naturally not to chop off the breath, plosives, uh, sort of speech editing, and then um, mixing music and music to speech ratios and all of that. So, you know, the first kind of 10 years of life after university was like deep in radio, BBC Radio World, and um, every kind of broadcasting, well, BBC, like Radio 4, Radio 5, Live, you know, those big Saturday shows of like live from the grounds, there's been a goal at wherever, and proms on Radio 3, World Service, Africa and Middle East section. So I just kind of, I was always in a studio, I was always in front of a desk. Yeah, I loved it. So in, in terms of doing like the tape editing and things yeah. like that, that sounds really intense. Did did everyone who started the course, or did a high percentage complete it? Or Yeah, yeah, we all, we all completed I mean, some people moved into production some people you know like sp sport and news are the, the sort of real high energy radio like mm. you've just it's high pressure the show's going out at the top of the hour you've got to get your package finished before then um and i always knew i wanted to be in music i was there but i kind of had my nose pressed up against the glass of radio one and radio two where which was sort of where where i wanted to be um but yeah, I, I did loads of speech, loads of speech radio, and yeah, a lot of editing on quarter inch with like a white pencil. It's so funny now because it's so simple to do it digitally. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there was an early system called Sadie, which I think was developed for film, which was like Pro Tools wasn't even around at that point. Um, but yeah, before then it was, you'd record something, you'd top and tail it with your leader tape, chop out sections, have bits hanging around your neck. <laughs> And then play it out on quarter inch, you know, on a Studer tape machine. That's crazy. Yeah. So when when you finished uni and you came to do that, had you always known that you would just come back to London? Yeah, yeah. It wasn't. I wasn't sort of. I don't know. 
I was eyeing up the States, but I had no idea how I, how I was going to do anything there. Um, was that because of hip hop or? But yeah, I mean, just I don't know. Growing up in the UK, it's like it's the promised land, isn't it? And you mm. just sort of all the films we watched as a kid, it just it's just a different places. world, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I think not being based in London, you come to London and there's a certain energy. But then, yeah, you go to New York and there's it's almost like that kind of multiplied. Yeah. So when you came back to London, were you still had you kept DJing in Bournemouth or did you kind of knock um, it on the head? There was lots of kind of DJing in the house and I was in a house of music nuts and we were all getting deep into kind of ambient and chill out and, and sort of experimental electronic stuff. Um, who were we listening to uh, at that time? Lots of Cypress Hill, lots of like Mixmaster Morris, Zion Train, Sort of experimental electronic stuff, but I never, I was never like looking to put it together as a, as a DJ set. We were all kind of tinkering around, and then someone bought a sampler, and I bought um, a W30 Roland keyboard, basically because I'd heard that Liam from the Prodigy had done the entire first Prodigy album, and I was like, right, oh, there you go. That's you know, how hard can that be? <laughs> <laughs> I was such a horrible keyboard; it's so difficult to program. Should have bought an MPC, but. If you thought it was easy to become the prodigy, then... yeah, exactly. That's you know the confidence of youth. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, I don't know. There was always always tinkering around with equipment, and someone definitely had an eight hundred eight in our in our in our scene. Um, but yeah, it was only really when I was back in London when I sort of started getting really deeply into what was going on currently. Actually, like Mo Wax and all you know everything that. James Lavelle was doing and mm. um well yeah I mean so first of all the blue note was incredible at that time the ninja tune nights were amazing there was a club in Brighton don't want to get my years mixed up but it was a kind of trip hop hip hop night um yeah it was a really fertile time for kind of beat led music which wasn't house or techno I mean there was obviously a whole world of house or techno going on at the time which I wasn't tuned into and I've sort of since discovered loads of great artists from that time but um cold cut were like they were my leaders everything that started on their radio show and they were a real musical education for me with experimental electronic stuff hip-hop go-go funk I'd like I can remember hearing certain tracks on there and then digging out the artist or the label or yeah, because Go Go was a really interesting one because that that seems to have had a big influence as like for like a regional music. Yeah, it's mad how it's kind of you don't hear about it, you don't really hear anyone talking about it. But there was a time where there was like acid jazz, hip hop, Go Go, mm. and everyone was talking about Trouble Funk. You know, they were playing here. Chuck Brown, Junkyard Band was all like it was just kind of around alongside hip hop. Yeah, um, and then you go to a go-go show and it's like it's just not it's like a dj set the drummer doesn't stop it just keeps going mm. it's, you know it's one song it's all kind of at the same tempo um it's all about the you know the drums and the percussion and then just it tends to all be the same sort of swing as well doesn't yeah. it yeah every so often like it sort of pops up in an artist's work someone will just like you know for one track or one bit will just like suddenly yeah. take it to dc for you know a few bars 
I don't know. It's it's still around, but it's just. Yeah, that there was. A, um, I think it was a production team. Wale right. did a tune that was really go-go influenced. Okay. Yeah, it samples um, "Love Hangover" by Diana Ross. Okay, but then has all the like go-go percussion on. Yeah. It's wicked. Michelle, I never know how to pronounce her surname. And Dave Cello is big into it, and there's moments on sort of all, all her albums where she'll suddenly have a go-go moment. Um, yeah, I think maybe the go-go revival is overdue. It could be. I mean, it's, it's interesting how. Because some of these scenes were, you know, like the big beat, broken beat, trip hop. They, they were so mm. big for a time, and then they kind of, they they kind of stayed yeah. there. But then acid jazz seems to have had like a renaissance now after yeah. what twenty five years in the wilderness. Yeah, it all just comes around, doesn't it? Yeah, same as with fashion. Um, yeah. So how was DJing for you then when you were back in London? Um, so I was going to a club called Megatripolis, which was at Heaven, which was um, in the main room. It was quite banging trance and techno, but in the side rooms there were, uh, or in the second room, it was just really eclectic. Certainly I saw Giles there a couple of times. I ended up DJing there a few times with my friend Dave, who's my kind of musical, he was like my musical partner in crime. And we were playing just weird stuff, weird electronic I'm sure we took a delay unit with us and started, you know, playing slowed down versions of the Bee Gees or whatever <laughs> we were doing, just trying to freak people out. Um, but I very clearly remember hearing Sound of the Police there for the first time right. at, at like in a back room at Heaven and just thinking, this is the ultimate hip hop tune. I've never heard anything this tough and, you know, hit like KRS-One has voice his performance what he was saying the track it just i was like i'm i'm done this is it there's, there's nowhere further to go from here and i think as well with that tune what an amazing hook yeah like uh, you get some really 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 talented rappers that just don't do hooks yeah it's word wordplay yeah but, but yeah it's, it's amazing yeah, it's incredible but to cut to the chase about my dj i was like i didn't dj in clubs that much I started doing bars, private events, friends' parties. So I was always DJing, you know, my name wasn't on a flyer. And no one was paying to come and see me. And also I was kind of, I could do a disco set. I could do a sort of, you know, guilty pleasures pop set. I could do a hip hop set. I, there was a, lots of like London bars where I was just playing funk and jazz and hip hop. Yeah. And a bit of dance hall. Were you kind of observing and thinking about how people are consuming the music and, and what, how the music almost occupies the space? Um, yeah, I don't know. I just felt like the pro-level DJs were just in sort of such another territory. I was like, I wasn't looking to get there. And also, you know, my interests in music are, I love Beach Boys, Frankie Valli, really harmonic sort of four-part vocal stuff i love metal i love techno i love hip-hop i love drum and bass it's all americana in my house at the weekend so i kind of like pretty much everything and musically i was such a sort of you know gadding about musically on these different directions i didn't want to be a hip-hop dj and i didn't want to be a sort of ambient horizontal dj and i didn't have the tunes to 
kind of be a house or techno DJ. So I don't know. I was just I was I was eclectic, but like without any real uh, any direction. And yeah. I was just kind of kind of happy for other people to specialize. Because um, it's like even although you're in so many different genres, it it's not quite being an open format DJ no. either, is it? Because you're deep into yeah this 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 and this yeah. But I can you know I could sort of play to a brief and dig yeah. into bits of my collection. Uh, and you know, doing bars where it was like, I'd have two bags of records. Everything was kind of you could dance to it. It was all it was all funky. And then I'd have, um, you know, a few random seven inch weird pop tracks which I'd throw in. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I I mean the the DJ who blew me away and I still just think is incredible is Mr. Scruff who mm. takes that sort of room two funk and soul. You know that that sound but does it it's so polished and he does it in a main room style with you know his whole universe of visuals and uh you know his approach around it and also he before anyone was kind of talking about audiophile sound systems or he was he was doing that you know i remember him at the big chill festival where he had his own tent and he'd get there you know days before anyone else with his spirit level with his yeah. protractor setting up the dicks and you know his approach to sound was always so there's rigorous there's an amazing video of it um, it's from O2 in Bristol I think where he's just going through his setup with his noise insulating wall yeah. and his concrete slabs and stuff like that yeah he just takes it really seriously whereas you know part of being a DJ is just being a sort of yeah is it, winging it and it's annoying enough having to take your decks let alone a load of concrete <laughs> yeah let alone a spirit level yeah but also, sorry, you know, to finish that thought, like musically as well, he could bounce around twenty different genres, yeah, and piece it all together, and you know, have big moments, have moments where it would all ride. Um, always impressed me. Very nice guy by all accounts as well. Lovely guy, lovely guy. Um, so this would be we're getting to the sort of late late nineties, around two thousand, mm. when you left BBC, didn't you, and started brand, kind of a brand radio consultancy, yeah. Sort of. Well, I started an internet radio station called uh, Space FM in 2000, and I wanted to move into production at the BBC, but it was just things were very slow moving there. Um, I was just impatient, so I left, and with some friends, we found a space in East London, in Shoreditch, in the Truman Brewery. Uh, built a radio studio and basically started broadcasting and it was a kind of classic two year 2000.com kind of disaster where <laughs> we we had loads of enthusiasm loads of good intentions we were ahead of our time but not in a good way in that no one had broadband so no one could listen to us right. so we were broadcasting away but the show people listening to the shows were kind of in silicon valley where they had capacity to listen to this thing and there was there was another station as well at the same time called ammo city who were a lot better funded than us but anyway it was what you know everyone it was kind of like the first internet gold rush where everyone was like wow you can download stuff on LimeWire and you can order a pizza on like, like i don't know everyone was getting their heads around the internet it was so early um but we had a studio we ended up doing lots of breakbeats um, Rennie Pilgrim had a show 
at the time. Oh, right. And then that led to shows with like the plump DJs and Botchett and Scarper, and that was kind of what was going on there. Uh, there was a big chill show on it for a while. Um, there was lots of house. Uh, we shared a studio with the guys from Sancho Panza. <laughs> Sancho Panza, I don't know if you know them. They do uh, Man Gym. They have always done these fantastic warehouse parties in London. Uh, they used to do Carnival for about 20 years there, and they always had this colossal sound system and great DJs um, and boat parties. So they were part of the gang. Um, and that was probably where I got... I started really getting into house music and the kind of deeper end of house music. And so, did um, did you build that network? Was it just a case of being in the right? They were literally, place? and they were like they had a desk next to us, right? Um, and then, funnily, I had a book on my table last night. A DJ saved my life. Yeah, and uh, a friend of Sancho's, Kevin, came in and was like, "Oh, you've got Bill and Frank's book," and. I didn't know them. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm reading. I'm absolutely loving it. This is, you know, the book I've been waiting for. And he was like, oh, I'll introduce you. So this was 2000, met Bill, met Frank. Um, both of them have, you know, become really solid friends and part of my musical life. And Bill and I have done, we've done edits together. We've had a record label. We've DJed together. We've kind of been on this musical journey still going on. He's played at every incarnation of Spiritland. Um, including some, we've been doing part, warehouse parties in Lisbon recently. He's been playing there. So, yeah. yeah, so just all the, you know, all these things have just happened organically just from leaving the BBC saying, right, I'm going to start a radio station. The radio, I mean, it was done within two years. What was the brand partnership sort of stuff that you did then? Because you worked with, um, was it Diesel and... Yeah, that was a bit later. So I, I did, um, I had a company called Pop-Up Radio and basically I was kind of, I will come and sort out your radio problems because I technically could build a studio and operate it and get it sounding good and get it on air, but also musically could do music supervision. So any brands who wanted to do any anything in the world of broadcast, um, I could help help out with. So Diesel had originally there was Diesel U Music, um, yeah, the prize. I think Milo came through that, but the main man at diesel renzo is a huge music guy and had this vision of a global radio station it was already up and running but um i went to work there and we ended up we did it around the world we did shows in new york went to the diesel headquarters kind of deep in rural italy we sort of took it around everywhere and it was great really good fun yeah and then in the monocle interview you mentioned that you were working with the guardian on some of the podcasts yeah early what was that experience like? Did you think they'd take off? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I then started, I was basically like radio, just sort of radio uh, Swiss Army Knife. So I was doing some, I was doing editing for the BBC. I was working on documentaries for some of the independent companies who service the BBC. Something else was the big one. I was doing a bit of live music production for one extra, so you know, went out to Jamaica and did some festivals, went to Sizzler's place, like ended up in some really kind of mad scenarios. But then the next week I'd be doing like music supervision for McDonald's, De Beers <laughs> or whatever. So, yeah, so a, it was a bit of everything. And then podcasts were starting to happen. Um, 
I started working on The Guardian's film podcast. So that was every week interviewing filmmakers and actors. I wasn't the presenter, Jason was, um, and putting that together and delivering that as a show. So it was all it was all sort of bimbling around around radio and music, but not with one focus, just freelance life. Whatever comes up, you say yes to it, you then work out how you're going to do it. Yeah. Um, and it might be a really nice client like iTunes or Coke, or it could be there's no money, you just have to turn up and multi-track something and mix it, you mm. know, for toppence. Um, and then I got a call or an email from... Uh, Luke Turner, who now is one of the founders of The Quietus and an author, uh, and he said, oh, Monocle are opening a radio station, the magazine, and it's a sort of very high-end, uh, global, globally-minded, international affairs, design, diplomacy, aviation. Very, it's like very, it's not niche, but it's it has a very specific worldview, and uh, I love the magazine. Um and yeah, I'd love to sort of. Well, they're moving into radio. What does that mean? They had a, they had a podcast which went out every week. Um, I went to the offices to meet the editor, and he said we're launching a music and news radio station, and we're going to do six hours of live news a day, which is a huge amount. It's more than the BBC, and wow. you know, knowing the number of people you need to get speech on the air. I mean, music radios fairly straightforward you have a dj if you're lucky you have a producer if you've properly funded you've got researchers and guests and marketing but you know you and i could do a music radio station here tomorrow yeah. it's, it doesn't whereas speech radio you need researchers cues contributors packages it's a it's a you know it's a totally different territory anyway um i joined them and i started as the exec producer and the radio station was called monocle 24 it's called monocle radio now and we had daily shows hourly shows we had a sort of a culture show a design show news-led shows and contributions from around the world so there were studios in new york hong kong istanbul zurich what, what was the sort of listenership then sort of i'd say small but select same with the magazine. It's not the num the numbers are not crazy, but it's the just the right people and they sure. and, and the advertisers, you look at who's advertising in there and they, they know who they're talking to. Yeah. So it's very it's very targeted. And everything's beautifully produced. In the magazine, the shoots, the writing, the, the, the topics they cover, it's just exquisite what they do. And and radio, which is not traditionally a luxury doesn't doesn't the luxury world and radio don't go together if there's adverts on radios for quick fit or mcdonald's whatever you know yeah. you, you're not you're not you're not going to get prada advertising no. on classic fm or anywhere um whereas monocle completely reinvented this and said we're going to go directly to those brands who they worked with already in the magazines and they can sponsor an entire show <clears throat> and the link to this is that uh they had a studio and a bureau in Tokyo. I went out to go and set it up. Just fell in love with Japan as, you know, that's all you can do when you get out there. It's just a, a sort of magical place. Yeah, the first time I went, I was like, this is, I'd, I'd always wanted to go and I'd had this sort of, well, I'm going to wait to be taken or, you know, and it's like, I'm not, no one's flying me out there 
to DJ. Just <laughs> get over yourself. Anyway, so went there with Monocle, absolutely loved it, and then went back for five weeks uh, with my wife, and we travelled all over the country. And they have this amazing approach to music where there's these listening bars there where you'll sit, and some of them are tiny. It could be eight seats. There'll be a cover charge to get in. There's a wall of vinyl, one or maybe two turntables, um, lots of vintage audio equipment, and obviously Japan is full of, you know, amazing electronical gear and devices, and like they just they have this really elegant, rigorous approach to listening to music, which is I'd, I'd not seen anything like it before. I'd heard about it. They're called. Kisaten, and obviously the jazz ones are the ones that everyone talks about, but they're split by genre. So there could be a blues bar, there could be a jazz bar, there could be a country bar. There's a famous classical bar where they'll sort of announce the piece and the performance and then play it in full. Um, and I just, where music and listening was in London just wasn't, it, there was nothing inspirational about it there. There's the massive venues where you sort of go because the bands won't play anywhere smaller, but everything else about the experience is just horrible. There's the clubs which weren't really doing it for me. I'm not going to go to one of the massive clubs, but also I didn't want to go to one of the sort of grimy warehouse places either. Mm. Um, and then there's the bars where it's kind of, it could be anything, it's on in the background. Certainly in London, there's a kind of this down the middle, like jazz funk soul thing of everyone plays sort of similar stuff and just going around these bars and it's also it's not just in Tokyo it's in these tiny little cities you know the equivalent of like a wherever Hull or something not you know any any city will have you'll walk in there'll be a you know really gorgeous sound system there'll just be one guy serving drinks and playing records and you can make requests as well not for tracks but for albums or an artist I was just so inspired by it and I spent my whole the whole time just banging on about it like why don't we have this in London mm. you know I've got all my musical interests I kind of it's me on my own at home on headphones or in front of my speakers just sort of on my solo musical odyssey and then sharing it online in kind of discussion groups but to go and sit in front of a amazing high performance sound system and have someone play what their personal passions are what you know i'm i was like i'm sure i could fill a room in london you know people who responded to that yeah there was something you said in the monocle interview that i found really interesting which was our relationship with music has become so devalued by the way you consume it now with mm. how you pay for it like you pay for it like a phone bill or a utility mm. the days of buying a record living with it and decoding it it's long gone and that really kind of hit me it's such a such a good point i've talked with some people on here about um intimacy with music and how we consume and stuff and, and yeah that kind of the subscription element does take something away doesn't it because it's all there for a flat price. You've not got to pay fifty pounds for this album, or yeah. you find this one for two pounds at a charity shop, or yeah. you know, there's none of that. I mean, it's sort of, it's just a result of the era we're in, where to rewind thirty years, you save up, you buy an album, buy whoever the Cure, and you kind of 
you live with it and you play it backwards and forwards and mm. analyze the sleeve notes and you know that's that album becomes your life and then the next one comes along um now you know tidal or spotify or any streaming like it's amazing you can't say you know a, a record pops into your head or an artist and suddenly you can listen to their entire discography and bounce around and then make your best ofs or whatever um so i mean you know the genie's out the bottle but to listen to it you know the idea of an album as a piece of work which starts finishes there's like eight ten twelve songs in it i still really love it as a format of like okay you've got between like 30 and 50 minutes to say what you want to say that's your album it's like you know in cinema you've got your 90 minute film in literature there's your sort of three four hundred page novel i really like the format of an album and to sort of sit and do nothing and also you know treat it like watching a film yeah uh it's such it's such a it's a joy it's a privilege now we do every day here at six o'clock we'll play an album sometimes it is more of a background experience and sometimes we'll crank it right up and it's a sort of okay we're just going to give this album loads of love and sort of that's how we'll start our evening here but yeah it's not it's not that i'm a vinyl fetishist i'm not sort of we could play it on cd we could play it on usb we could play it on reel to reel um I love the the idea that the artist has said, right, this is my vision for the album. This is the, you know, has progressed from the last one or it's a 180 from the last one. Um, I just think that kind of love should be shown. That's what we do. We're here to sort of put this album in a frame and say, listen to this. Um, and if it's not an album, it could be an artist. So we'll do, we quite often do a Nights of Just One Artist. We've done all the sort of, Ones you might imagine, Prince, Bowie, yeah. Beatles, but we've also done Craftwork, New Order, Prefab Sprout. We just did a massive Lewis Taylor night, which came at the end of a Lewis Taylor week because I'm obsessed with Lewis Taylor <laughs> and what you know his music. And he's uh, he's just released an acoustic album. He's re-released all his old albums on Be With Records. He'd released a new album, so we're like, okay, let's you know, he's our guy. Let's just go all out on Lewis Taylor. Um, yeah. And then, you know, for example, when Blur paid Wembley, suddenly we're just in a world of Blur, ditto pulp. So, we, you know, we've got time and space because there's no dance floor here. You can say, right, we're going to program a week of pulp albums. Just to wind back then, when you mm. came back from Japan, I mean, we're, we're sitting in Spiritland King's Cross now, but this wasn't the first iteration, was it? Like, how do you have this sort of concept for something with this level of equipment how do you test the waters and have a proof of concept or how do you find, you know, how do you get into all that side of starting something like this? Um, so I'd been uh, sort of as well as, <clears throat> you know, on my musical journey, I've been on this like audio upgrade path where you kind of started, to, started off with like richer sounds gear and mm. then I was like, oh, I'm going to get a CD player from Lynn or Arkham or whatever. Um and just tinkering around, you know, upgrading bits and bobs. I had some quad ESLs, which are these sort of big radiator speakers. Um, and then I was playing around with DAX. And, uh, yeah, I, I I ended up at um, a hi-fi show in Munich called High End, which is room after room of the most insane sound systems. Ten grand for a lead. Everything's just, it's just 
completely bonkers. Um, I was there really just to kind of go and hear it. I wasn't looking to buy anything. And then I went to a room um, called Living Voice, or the company is called Living Voice, yeah. and that's run by a guy called Kevin Scott, based in Long Eaton near Nottingham, and he makes really insanely high-end speakers and then pairs them with similarly high-end sources and amplifiers and cabling and just their whole approach is sort of no compromise um and i heard these speakers i was like this is it was totally revelatory it was insane performance detail i talk about it's like a time machine when you hear and often at these shows you hear the kind of same there's certain tracks which you just hear the whole time because people want to show off their system and there's certain reference tracks but he was playing like big band from the fifties, it's like a time machine. The, there's the horns, there's the tambourine. It's it's so immersive. It just took my head off. Now he also makes kind of real world speaker. You know, he makes some of his speakers are um, enormous, colossally expensive, beautifully made. The people who buy them are sort of will own football clubs and. Yachts and airlines, whatever. Mm. But he also makes real-world floor standards for people like you and me. Um, so I started, A, going to his demo room and then buying equipment off him. So he advised me on, you know, amps and cabling and put together a sound system in my house, which just sounded lovely. And then after Japan, I said, you know, I've got this idea called Spiritland. It's a listening bar not a club but there's DJs playing every night and would you want to be part of it he's like yeah sounds great I'd love to do it we'll build a pair of speakers now the speakers which you can see out here are very 70s they're very inspired by Japanese design they're quite um, I mean they do look you know they've got this array of three tweeters and mid-range horns they they look pretty esoteric and funky but um, nothing compared to the sort of speakers he makes for some of his clients Mm. um but yeah that was so initially to rewind at munich i went to tannoy because i always liked tannoys and said i'm opening this pop-up in a a restaurant in shoreditch restaurant was called merchant's tavern and angela hartnett was the head chef there along with her husband neil and it was a really gorgeous room which had a bar at the front and a restaurant at the back right in the middle of Shoreditch, but it was people were you like having a cocktail and then going through for dinner, like you would at a hotel or something. It wasn't part of the Shoreditch bar scene, but like mm. everywhere around it, there was all this stuff going on. And I met uh, the guys who'd founded it with Angela um, and just said, I've got this idea called Spiritland. It's DJs, but they're not, you know, they're not mixing, they're not playing a night of house. It's a, it's a listening experience. And should we road test it in the bar? It all happened really quickly. I think I was back from Japan in April, and we opened in October. Oh wow! So it was a it was a really it was a really quick one. Tanoi loaned us a pair of speakers. Kevin at Living Voice loaned us a pair of Canary amps. We used a Bozak mixer, which had been upgraded by Isono. We had a pair of upgraded Technics with a sort of twelve-inch tone arm on them. So we had some some really nice gear. There were CD players there, but not CDJs. They were kind of just quite discreet, rack-mounted Sony ones. Um, 
the mixer wasn't between the decks it was off to the side so just sort of lots of cues of like it's not a club it's a mm. listening room and it was supposed to just be a three-month pop-up it ended up going for two years but i programmed kind of everyone who i'd um work with and all you know all my musical friends to just come and play whatever they want and it was a sort of free reign of like you know you don't need to get a dance floor going so you can play whatever you fancy were you kind of paying them for whack or was it like no i mean it was kind of what you'd get to play in a bar yeah 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 so it was all it was free to come in um and it was they you know we'd have a like really hefty tab so everyone was like great i'll have the oysters and you know everyone was it was such an enjoyable place to dj because no one's requesting anything you can play whatever you fancy and it's a lovely room and a lovely and also just like playing music on that sound system so well that's what i was wondering was were people like were the djs like i want to come and play on this oh yeah yeah and it it all happened really quickly and then you know we'd have djs like people like um justin robertson or Richard Norris, who kind of, they're used to playing to lots more people and they can play a sort of really banging electronic set. But it's, it's a chance for them to play all of their weird stuff kind of from the back of the box, which you they could never play out usually. Um, we, Franz Ferdinand played, and they played a really sort of fun set. I mean, I remember them playing Football Fight by Queen, sort of stuck in my head for some reason. Uh, Zach Cowie from LA and Elijah Wood, the actor, were yeah, both yeah. big collectors. Um, Zach then went to set up something called In Sheep's Clothing, which is a sort of similar to what we're doing. Uh, they came and played, you know, like kraut rock, Turkish, funky seventies prog, like really, just amazing set um, with the DJ Fitz, who's their kind of musical cohort, and then Andrew Weatherall just got in touch and said, oh, I'm around the corner. I, oh, wow. You know, I love the food. Can I come and play? And I was like, what the heck? You know, <laughs> am, I, am I dreaming? Is this, you know, and he's he was, you know, like a god to me. Like He was yeah. such an amazing DJ, producer, life force, uh, you know, just an, an incredible person, which since he died has sort of, I think everyone has understood like, what you know mm. what he meant and his approach and his uncompromising nature and uh, you know it was there but we never quite saw it because he was around he was around and about and then um yeah anyway so he he played and he played an evening of rockabilly and some dub and it was just really funny because there were people in there who are like massive weatherall fans and then there were people in there who just popped in for a drink on the way home yeah couldn't get into the bar around the corner and they're like oh you know he's all right so yeah, it was just amazing kind of time and the press. We got some really lovely press on it very early on where they just understood that we were doing something different. So, yeah, that was next year will be 10 years since we started that. So it was just a sort of toe in the water of like, is this something people are interested in? And then we started getting approached to do album launches. But from artists who needed the sort of you know high, like a high security album launch where you can't have any recordings no videos mm-hmm. we'd have to shut the kitchen which we couldn't do because it was not our venue yeah so we started looking around for like what okay let's do this as a dedicated space and where in london does that live and we went to look at all sorts of sites and then 
got talking to King's Cross, which at that point didn't look anything like it did now. It's kind of mm. still still being built. Um, the world sort of ended at the top of our road where Dishoom was. Yeah. And beyond that, it was just a colossal building site. And um, this space we're in was Google Glass, the, the specs with the oh. cameras built in. And the whole project got pulled very suddenly. So suddenly they had this space and um, we just, we went for it. We built built the room, built the sound system, put this radio studio in, which was always a big part of what we do. And um, yeah, we launched in September. And I mean, that was seven years ago and we've, we've sort of just stuck to our guns musically. And that means, you know, some nights you'll hear like really the sort of, you know, you could walk in and it will be Fleetwood Mac or I don't know, something like you could sing along with it. I'm not encouraging that, but I'm just <laughs> saying like very well-known music. Sometimes it's totally esoteric and it's sort of the private passions of whoever's playing. Um, we are, you know, we're very pro-pop. So it's, you know, we will do Pet Shop Boys and George Michael and... I don't know, Robin and like that. We're we're not kind of mm. snobbish, but we are snobbish about keeping the quality right there. But yeah. um yeah, I mean, sort of nine DJs a week, seven years. We've done that's a lot of people and a lot of music and a lot of different directions. Um And that's just here. And then we then opened a shop in Mayfair selling headphones and a sort of personal audio equipment and then we opened uh, a big site at the Royal Festival Hall on the ground on the sort of basement floor of the Royal Festival Hall on the, the South in the Bank South Bank Centre yeah. um, and we just the we just got completely tonked by the timing we opened at the start of 2019 so we spent one year kind of finding our people building our following letting mm. people know there's a great bar and restaurant and music venue in the South Bank and then everything fell off a cliff in 2020 the South Bank Centre didn't reopen between the pandemics. So the whole area just was a ghost town for a year and a half. And then when it did open, it just into a very different world, very different London. The three-day week is a real thing. Lots of people have made a break to the coast or Europe or wherever. Um, yeah, I went down there a while ago and it seemed quite like a touristy sort of area more than anything. I don't know if that kind of the music consumption message would have maybe not yeah i think kind of resonated um, you know where we are in king's cross there's loads of creatives there's loads of agencies there's loads yeah. of music industry and film and arts and at the south bank you're next to the london eye you're next to the aquarium every other restaurant there is a chain you know we were trying to do something really distinctive and we did and you know who knows in another reality it would have worked but the day-to-day -day, it just wasn't it just wasn't mm. working so um we did lots of parties there so we put in a sound system very different one to this um it was a living voice system but there was also a dmb german brand uh pa system in the ceiling so we did lots of club nights there so would you use the because because I know you mentioned here you don't have the stu you don't have monitoring for the DJ booth partly because mm. it's like the cues for not being about mixing but partly so that you're not confusing the sound stage yeah so would you would it be the PA or the it was both main system it was both and it was it was a sort of 
distributed sound so it was all time aligned through the room so wherever you are it's a kind of cohesive sound but it just had tons more low end Mm. it basically had you know great big subs um it wasn't it was loud it wasn't like a pulverizing club sound it was still kind of pleasant but it wasn't that like body moving yeah ministry plastic (laughs) people experience um but we really punched above our weight with our djs and our programming and initially it was it was very much like let's have the odd party here and we did it monthly and it was all friends and family so um patrick forge did the first one then bill brewster then sancho panza and then sort of just like people i've been mentioning like people from our our musical universe um and then we got talking to um Quantic's agent who said, Oh, he'd quite like to come and play. Love Quantic. Okay. So he played and um and then we just after the and we started doing them more and more and then after the pandemic, we reopened and we just went all out. We were just like, we're just gonna do this every Friday night. And we had um Danny Crivet, yeah, Francoise K, uh Fabian Groove Rider, Laurent Garnier, Sasha. And then, like, Jane Fitz, Love Vingers, Heidi Lorden, um, DJ Crust. I mean, yeah, it's just top, kind top of names. great names. And then, you know, people who we love, John Gomez, Mafalda, uh, Colleen Cosmo Murphy, Arup Roy played there a bunch of times. Jarvis Cock and Alexis Taylor played together several times at the opening and at the closing party. So, yeah, we just kind of, we we just absolutely went for it there and um you know i feel like uh the dance floor side of what we do is sort of yet to be fully explored because that space was a restaurant which turned into a club so it meant every time we did that let's take all the tables and chairs out Mm. um and it was that it was nice and we had you know i did the door at all of them with sophie my business partner um the security were really friendly it was it was like a real old school kind of house party rather than Mm. You don't, we're not scanning your ticket or anything like that. And you also, for me, it was like I got to meet everyone. I got yeah. to meet all the, the you know, our, our guests and people coming through. And it's, it was like a lovely social experience. But yeah, it ran its course. We couldn't keep it going any longer. Uh, we closed it at the beginning of the year, which was a sort of a tough one and also a massive relief to sort of, you know, yeah. say goodbye. So, what's next for Spiritland? We are opening another bar in London, uh, and it's going to be another Spiritland cocktail bar. It's going to be a little bit more along the Japanese model of we're going to put a massive record collection, record and CD collection in there. Um, so we've been accumulating records here just in the time we've been going, and also my record collection at home, which is sort of just sits there unloved, is all going to go in there, um, as well as a big CD collection. So you'll be able to come, we'll give you the black book, you request a record or a couple of records and our team will play them. And then in the basement, we're going to do a dedicated club space and it's about 200 capacity and it's basically so we can carry on where we left off at at Royal Festival Hall. Probably more um, along the lines of residents than guests. And all the clubs in my sort of with my like disco historian nerd hat on like all the clubs i've been really interested in it's all been about the residents who play 
the whole time, week in, week out, and can really refine their sound and, you know, anthems are built. And that that's where a lot of the interesting stuff happens because it's fairly straightforward, you know, to book a guest, you pay the money, you deal with the agent, they come, you sell the tickets and the, the room's full. But actually to have people on their way up who are sort of defining their sound and looking and looking to do something um just unique that's that's really interesting to me and we've had it i mean i wouldn't they're not our residents but we had certain people who played you know multiple times at royal festival hall luke Una, maurice fulton uh jane fitz played a bunch of times like that you know giving them the whole night to do their thing letting them play uh you know start to finish is just it's just a magical thing and it's um i don't know i feel like london's kind of missing a dance floor at the moment a, a, a smallish one mm. um so that's what we're that's what we're going to do there will be house disco balearic you know the 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 beat led stuff of what we do but also um you know some indie and some more left field and some more um you know, Northern Soul, and it's not just going to be a club, club, club. It's, I don't know, I think about it as a discotheque. Yeah. Um, the sound and the room treatment, and that's, that's you know, all kind of what we're working on at the moment. But again, the drinks will be nice, the seating will be nice, it'll be a, you know, it'll be a, a, like a lovely experience. And what we, what's been so satisfying about what we've done in this whole project is like, there is a community that has built up around what we're doing, and it's kind of, there's music lovers, but there's also just cultural fiends who've come from different areas of the arts and just different worlds of creativity. Um, and we've sort of given everyone somewhere to just come and play, come and do their thing. Yeah, I think, because I think promotion is a really hard thing because you're trying to get an existing community to, to go from where they currently are to where you want them to be, which mm. is your thing. So... I think if you can do something where you're creating your own community, that's really positive and, and it kind of means you're not um, kind of battling for people. You know, you're like, this is something different. Yeah. USP, isn't it? But yeah, I think particularly after um, lockdown as well, to be able, like kind of building these kind of smaller communities is a really valuable thing rather than expecting people en masse Um so yeah, good, good luck with it. Yeah, thank you. Sounds fantastic. Thank you. Um, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks very much for your time today, Paul, and good luck with everything. Cheers, Adam. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Once a DJ podcast. If you've got any questions or feedback or any suggestions for guests, please just get in touch with us at onceadjpodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at Once a DJ Podcast. Take care, and we'll speak to you soon. Ah, oh, that was nice.